Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Marcus. Morning, Andy, and morning to all the uh, listeners out there. Yeah, that's right. It's a big day today. We've got lots of things on. And we're going to quickly talk to Margaret Sinclair from the Refugee Action Collective. I'll bring her on and... G'day, Margaret. How are you? Hi, I'm pretty good, thank you. Yeah. Now, the reason why we're talking to you is because of uh, information that's come uh, about a returned Manus asylum seeker who has been on returning uh, because, of course, he, you know, has no reason to have been uh, uh, sheltering uh, or calling for refugee status in Australia and spending years in Manus and being abused. As soon as he gets back, he gets attacked. Can you talk to us about what happened? Well, there was a group of five Bangladesh asylum seekers who were forced back to Bangladesh in March 2018. And this particular man, Sam, he um, was threatened upon return by the same people who had um, threatened him and uh, attacked him before he had originally left the country back in 2013. And uh, a couple of months ago, um, those threats were followed through with and he was physically attacked, uh, ended up in hospital, getting stitches to his head. And um, I think the the most frightening thing for him at the moment is that his family's being threatened now too. Now, I mean, 2013 to 2018, so a person who's come from Bangladesh in fear uh, comes to Australia, asks for refugee status, and uh, it, it, it quite clearly is in a situation of fear and loathing. Why is it? What? What? Your the PNG process for assessing claims is quite clearly flawed. Absolutely, I think um, there's been a, no- a number of people who have had um, a similar situation to Sam. Um, there's, I suppose there's a, a number of different aspects to the flawed process. I think, um, well, first of all, it's, it's happened, like the actual processing of claims has happened within the actual detention centre itself. They don't get a choice in lawyers. They get assigned a lawyer, and I've had a number of people tell me that, you know, the lawyers really didn't do anything. They just sat there. Um, they've been... The process has been incredibly slow. 
So initially when people were sent to Manus Island, nobody's claim was processed until um, probably 2014. So they were there you know, for a good six months or more before their claims were being processed. Um, there were people who, who told me that they had appointments to have their claim heard and they didn't get to those actual appointments because they were sleeping and nobody had told them or they had been um, on such a cocktail of medications that they couldn't really um, have a fair chance of putting forward that claim. And within the PNG process, there's no chance for um, the sorts of reviews that, that are possible in Australia. So it was an incredibly unfair process. Um, it was an inaccurate process for many people. Um, and we have this sort of thing as a result, someone who has failed the Papua New Guinea process to have their claim heard and have been sent back into danger. So we've got a federal government that's uh, deliberately, and it's bipartisan, it would almost appear, uh, have offshored, made a camp offshore so that, one, it doesn't uh, have to comply with uh, the review status of uh, that's required within Australia, in the Australian context, that de- they've deliberately done that. And also worse, I suppose, in a way, it's out of sight, out of mind. Absolutely. So there's, in a sense, anyone who's trying to claim asylum and end up in an offshore processing centre... Um, has has really got you know all the cards stacked against them. It's uh, it's not um, it's just really not fair. And for people who were sent to Nauru, it's the same sort of thing. So they're processed under Nauruan law as far as um, their claims for asylum goes. There's a number of men who were um, found to have a negative refugee status on Manus who were given an opportunity to have their claim reheard in Nauru if they were to move to Nauru and about 20 of them took it up and a number of those people um, have now had their negative refugee status changed to a positive refugee status but they would never have had that second chance under the Papua New Guinea law. Oh, that's fascinating. And in the case of this particular man, a man seeking asylum in Australia and uh, the shameful uh, treatment of refugees by the Australian government, this man found the new world was worse than the old. Oh, in a very sense, yes. I mean, if you think about, you know, where can you go if you need to have a safe place? Australia's a safe place for, for some people. Um, and if the safest countries are rejecting you, then you look around, there's really no other options. And as Sam has said, um, He's got no money to be able to escape again uh, because everyone who's forced back to their home country, they have, uh, they don't get given, um, you know, the the monetary, uh, you know, like twenty five thousand or whatever, if they have been forced back. Uh, they don't get. Uh, I don't think Sam had got any of the compensation through um, the Slater and Gordon compensation case. And if you think about five years in detention, that's five years of not working, not earning money. So um, he hasn't really got that um, that ability to be able to escape again. 
but what's most on his mind is that he's fearful for his children and he was begging me that if there could be anything done at all just to save his children because they're the ones who are receiving death threats now. Yeah, when you also consider, yeah, that's very sobering. Uh, the uh, You can also imagine on a very practical level that uh, he would have been 27 when he came and he's now 32. Now, these are the prime uh, years of a person's life uh, spent languishing in a place like Manus. And uh, he describes the uh, actually quite barbaric treatment that he experienced as a person on Manus. Can you talk to us about that? Um, what Sam was telling us about was the closure of the processing centre on Manus in 2017. So maybe many of your listeners might remember that the Australian government closed the centre down on the 31st of October and... Um, for the next three weeks, uh, there were about 450 people who had remained uh, on in the detention centre itself because they refused to be forcibly resettled into a community that they knew didn't really want them, couldn't handle their complex health needs, and where they had also experienced violence. You know, when they've gone out for for um, shopping trips and whatever, when they've been attacked and, and robbed and they didn't want to be forced into that. So Sam was one of the people, one of those 450 people who had been, um, who had remained in the detention centre without any food, without any water, uh, without any electricity. I know that there was food smuggled in in the middle of the night on boats. That wasn't really enough for all those hundreds of people. And they had dug wells in the centre, but it wasn't really the cleanest of water. Um, and... On the 23rd of November, the first lot of people who were in the centre were um, attacked by the police with metal bars and forced out. And then on the 24th, the rest, the remaining, were forced out of the centre. And it was very violent. The police had come in with bars, uh, metal bars. They were hitting people. And Sam was one of the people who had been hit and uh, badly injured. Um, he had also said that after he had uh, been forced into Hillside, which was the um, uh, Lorengo uh, detention centre for people with a negative refugee status, that he and the other five, uh, the five Bangladesh men, were forced into the actual jail in Lorengo, and he was bashed there again, and his he uh, leg had been badly hurt. Uh, he said his leg had been broken, but I'm not sure if that was the bone or, or the skin that had been broken, but it was uh, quite a severe injury. And then they were forcibly uh, returned to Bangladesh? That's correct, yes. They went on Thai airways. So uh, for Sam and his family, uh, I mean, quite clearly you're getting the story out there. Um, on one level, what we're seeing is not only a cruel um, government, but we're seeing an incompetent government. I mean, in their terms, they would say that uh, we've pushed this away. We're very clever. We've, we've pushed this away. We've made the PNG people, uh, government, responsible. We're go they're going to use their law and we'll give them a bit of money so that they can uh, take this problem from us. 
But in actual fact, Australia has international obligations and it's supposed to actually be a humane society. I mean, some people would question this, but uh, this is a public uh, display of our government's incompetence. Absolutely. I think um, that there's a lot of uh, new laws that have been brought in, particularly by this government, that have made the processing of claims a lot less accurate onshore as well, such as you know removing the funding for lawyers or by um, getting rid of the uh, uh, review process that used to exist um, before this government came into power, the uh, refugee uh, review tribunal, so that was got rid of. I think um, this is all part and parcel of deterrence policy. You don't deter people by being nice or kind or fair or upholding their human rights. You deter people by being the opposite of all those things. And that's what we've um, been seeing, probably not just under this government, but for probably the past couple of decades since we've had mandatory detention and indefinite detention and offshore detention all brought into play. Would you say that this is, I mean, it's so Franz Kafka for those people who read. Um, <coughs> do, do you think that uh, by uh, pretending, you know, that there's a structure and that, you know, they have uh, so-called tribunals and they have a pretend process, that all they're doing is ensuring and com- comforting the general Australian population, that uh, we are a fair country? Um, I think, you know, whenever these accusations are levelled against the the government, they always come up with, oh, but we're the most generous refugee nation, you know, as far as, you know, accepting a humanitarian intake and and all the rest. They always come up with um, that sort of a, a reasoning. But however good you might be to some people, it can never excuse how bad you can be to other people. And as long as we've got mandatory detention and indefinite detention and we're off, trying to offshore our responsibilities um, to other poorer countries, um, then then it's a, a very poor state of affairs. I'd like to think about a, another scenario where we actually held up, you know, the the spirit of the Refugee Convention in, in fact as well as, you know, in writing. Yeah, if in if in 2013 Sam had arrived and we actually all we all we focused on was processing the claim for asylum, and if someone was found to be a genuine refugee under a really fair process that was looking at you know accuracy and um, and that type of thing, then he could have had permanent refugee status in Australia and had a chance to bring his family out so that they could also be safe. And he would have had the last six years of working, paying taxes, living a very normal life in Australia and being, um, you know, established and accepted by our community. That's the alternative to what's actually happened. What would you like people to do to uh, assist you in getting Sam's message out? I think um, probably sharing his story. Uh, I think that's important, but also realising that his story is not unique and that there are a number of people who have also been given a false refugee status, a false negative refugee status, and that they're also in need of help. 
So people who are in danger of being deported, such as the Biloela family, or such as um, Nguyen, the, the Vietnamese lady who's in Mighty Detention Centre at the moment and who's under threat of deportation, or you know, other people who have gone through um, the, the first round of um, having their claims heard and getting a temporary protection visa and now going through again, and, and some of them have been given a negative refugee status after being given a positive refugee status, and they're going to be under risk of um, deportation as well. We all got to be standing shoulder to shoulder with these people and and um, just raising a bit of a ruckus about um, their potential deportations because to return people to harm, to me that's a, a terribly shameful um, aspect of... Australia's refugee policy and practice and we really got to be standing up and saying we've got to be better than this and um, we've got to be giving people proper safety, permanent protection and, and not returning them to harm. Margaret, just before you go, uh, this business about positive uh, refugee status and negative uh, refugee status, is this new language, this new pseudo sort of medicalised uh, kind of language that's being used or is that has that um, always been the way has it changed over time I'm not terribly sure if it's changed over time I, I suppose I've just got in the habit of speaking that way because I, I've talked to people on Manus and Nauru for over five years now and, and that was that's just the language that's used between advocates and activists and, and the people who are detained you know, whether they've what their status is if it's positive if it's negative and you know, um, if it's double negative or double positive or something, it's, something it's, it's like um, it's like a blood blood work or um, AIDS state status. It's it's really interesting undermining of uh, people's. Uh, 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 it, it's a, it's a way of neutralising the uh, sense that a person is a person. Yeah, it does come across as a bit dehumanising. I mean, to me, if if someone's got a genuine fear of um, death or torture or, um, you know, discrimination or, or persecution of some sort, then then they've obviously got a, you know, they should be given the type of refugee status that gives them permanent protection. Yeah, maybe I should stop using this term. Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. It's just struck me. And and it also, as uh, Marcus was saying, you know, people, you've got individuals and they're being crushed in the wheel of political uh, expediency, effectively. Absolutely. And it's a very strange thing that, you know, you have politicians saying that they don't want people dying at sea (sighs) and yet they treat the survivors so badly and they dehumanise them and, and treat them so cruelly, deny them medical treatment. Look at the way the Medivac law was repealed. and Can you believe that? People... That is just oh, obscene. It is. And, you know, and the, the reason given is national security. And, I mean, but, what, you know, how much bullshit is that? Absolutely. I mean, some poor old sod on a boat who wants to live in peace and safety is not a threat to me or no. you, or anyone else. That's not the national security threat. But um, I think politicians who lie, that's a very big national security threat because they could come up with any old thing, couldn't they? Like yeah, exactly. Weapons of mass destruction or something like that. And <laughs> yeah. 
That's yeah. a national security <clears throat> threat, you know, coming up with that sort of propaganda to, to go to war. That's, um, that's a bigger threat than anyone who comes on a boat or arrives on a plane. Thanks whichever for talking. Way. Yeah, thank. Yeah, well, whichever way. I mean, the, fancy the vessel that you arrive in being the important element. Yeah, <laughs> I know. They escape the same wars and persecution. It doesn't really matter the mode of travel. Thanks for talking to us, Margaret. Thanks, Margaret. Since we spoke to Molly in the last episode of Schools Out, there's been some good news regarding the Jabberong People's Tent Embassy campaign to prevent sacred trees from planned redevelopments of the Western Highway. A court case raised by the Jabberwong people has been successful and forced to stop in the government's plan to cut the sacred trees. Let's begin by getting a recap by Molly on the Jabberwong Tent Embassy campaign. The Jabberwong Embassy is about 
10Ks out of Ararat. It's currently a blockade, the longest blockade in Australian history. Right now, a bunch of lovely humans are protecting sacred Indigenous birthing trees up on Jaburong country, which are being threatened by the Victorian government and Vic Roads and major road projects who have threatened to destroy this sacred land through the Western Highway duplication. You can follow the Jaburong Embassy socials to stay up to date with the front line there. Support is urgently needed on the front lines if you can provide help in any way by just staying one night or going over the weekend. All support is greatly appreciated. Anyone and everyone is welcome to get involved in the climate movement because everyone is needed. You can get involved with XR by heading to an introduction talk, which you can find more information about on the XR Instagram, Facebook or website. Thanks again to Molly, who we are keen to have join us again in the future of Schools Out. Next on Schools Out, we're going to play an advisory piece for any teens out there who have witnessed middle-aged men picking on teens who are environmentalists. This piece of audio focuses on the attacks on Greta Thunberg by many middle-aged men in recent months. Hi, I'm a middle-aged man with an embarrassing problem. I get irrationally angry at a Swedish girl who wants to save the planet. Luckily, there's now a number I can call. Hello, you've called the Greta Thunberg helpline. If you're a grown adult who needs to yell at a child for some reason, the Greta Thunberg helpline is here to tolerate you. She's just fueling needless anxiety. She's making the end of the world sound like it's the end of the world. This whole charade's gone too far. Now I see she's speaking in front of a mock UN. So that was the real UN. So before you go full caps lock in an article comment section, let our expert counsellors assess your situation. Right here, right now, is where we draw the line. Right here, right now, right here, right now, right here, right now. Finally today, let's hear some voices from the live rallies held nationally on November 29th. I'm Luca Saunders, I'm 14 and I'm a school strike organiser from the Blue Mountains. And I'm Ambrose Hayes, also 14 and I'm a school striker from Sydney. I'm here today because like many of you, I have seen the effects of climate change and I am angry at the government's inaction. Who else is angry? Most of them don't know what it feels like to be a kid living in the bush, walking out of your house and only seeing the red of a fire on the horizon. These people have probably never packed their possessions into a car and driven off not knowing whether they'll see their house again. That's why we're standing here in front of Liberal Party headquarters today. They have the power to do something about this crisis, yet they're pretending that it's not happening. What do you think of that? I'm here today because our government is obligated to help its people and are doing no such thing. It's not even summer yet and already New South Wales and Queensland are in the grips of a catastrophic fire crisis. It's already burned more than the last three years combined. 
The mining and burning of coal, oil and gas is the main driver of climate change, which is causing these record-breaking fires, droughts, heat waves and the weather conditions that are fueling them. Pushing rural communities to the brink and even us here in Sydney. What do you think of that? People have died. People have lost their homes and others have had to evacuate. Indigenous leaders have been warning the governments of this spiralling bushfire crisis, but it's fallen on deaf ears. Communities are hurting and they deserve more than our government's empty words. They deserve action on this crisis to protect them from further impacts. And that's why we're here today in solidarity with the people who have been affected to support the bushfire appeal and to demand real climate action. This means increasing support for Indigenous land management, increasing support for the Rural Fire Service, taking serious and immediate action on climate change, which means no new coal, oil and gas projects, including Adani's Carmichael Mine. 100% renewable energy generation and exports by 2030 and funding for just transition and jobs for workers in the fossil fuel industry and their communities. It's time for action, not words. Right here, right now, right here, right now, right here. Good morning everyone, I'm Cheyenne Broderick from Nimboida, New South Wales. On Friday the 8th of November, catastrophic bushfires swept through Nimboida in a wave of destruction. It was unstoppable. We are so, so lucky in our community that everyone survived. We woke up that morning and started to finish preparing for my 18th birthday party that was planned for that night. We quickly had to cancel it due to receiving an evacuation warning text message. The fact that the sky was darkening from a grey to an orange to red reinforced the seriousness. The smoke choked the air as it had for weeks and weeks beforehand and the huge glow coming over the hill that we could see from our back veranda kept getting bigger. Whole scorched leaves fell from the sky and ashes blew in with the wind, covering every surface. We packed some possessions, although at the time I thought it was just as a precaution. Our house wouldn't really burn down, would it? My friend Andy, who came down from Brisbane for the party, and I evacuated at 2.50. My brother was safe at school and my parents left home at 4.30, by which time it was too dark to see without headlights on the car. They said they could just hear the roar from the fire. The scenes were apocalyptic and terrifying. There was an eerie feeling something bad was about to happen. I stayed at a friend's house in Grafton that night. I spent it trying to get in contact with people, my friends who had stayed at home in Nimboida, trying to call them to see if everyone was safe. A friend messaged me around 6pm and told me their house had gone and their dad had only just made it out alive. I woke up the next morning to be informed that my house had also gone, but we were so lucky to still have the shed and the horses. The fire stormed through Glens Creek Road and Frickers Road where we live and left it stripped bare. I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for so much for your, all your support and kindness and generosity. The overwhelming support from the community has been incredible and we're so grateful for everything everyone is doing to help us. But Mr Morrison, as Prime Minister, your prayers and thoughts are not enough. Climate action. We need climate action. This is an emergency. This is a crisis. Action.
act like it. This is the climate crisis. Prime Minister, stop ignoring those who have so much more knowledge and experience in these areas. Listen to the Indigenous leaders. Listen to the former fire commissioners. Listen to the scientists and the science. Enough is enough. Listen and act. I feel you do not fully understand the severity of these bushfires. You cannot do much to prepare for such catastrophic bushfires such as the ones that swept through our towns. These were not normal bushfires. These were firestorms. There was virtually no opportunity for us to perform a safe pool fuel reduction burn this season as it was too hot and dry. We've been in drought for so long, which has been worsened by climate change. It's hard to understand the severity of the damage through photos. It is only when I returned home to Nimboida almost a week after the bushfire, that I began to understand the severity of the damage and comprehend the full scale of destruction and devastation. The burnt smell is disgusting, not pleasant like campfire smoke. It lingers in your clothes and in your car days after. The bushes are burnt, all the creeks have been hammered, destroyed. They are little dry valleys of charcoal, dry creek beds, dusty with ash. Everywhere you look is charcoal, the place looks apocalyptic. As soon as you're surrounded by the devastation and scorched bush, your mood changes. I hate being out there now. It's unrecognisable. This isn't home. So, Prime Minister, I invite you to come out and visit us in Nimboida, where every second or third person you meet has lost their house, and those who haven't have lost various other things or are lucky to be alive. Mr Morrison, I worry you have the misconception that this is normal. So I implore you to speak with the firefighters who did everything they could, who will tell you they have never seen anything like this before, and then listen to the stories of those who stayed behind, and they will recount to you fireballs, ember attack, and a wall of fire over 40 metres high. There's no stopping this. And then as we stand on the bare ash earth while we are surrounded by the remains of our houses, bushland, and charred corpses of trees, then I want you to look around you and take it all in because when you're there, there's no ignoring it. Then I want you to look me directly in the eyes and tell me these unprecedented bushfire storms are part of a normal cycle. Then I want you to tell me this is not the time to be talking about climate change. Should have known what was in store when I married you. A year-long labour, all oh, this child is so old. No, I don't wanna see his face. I've taken you this far, little man, and now it's up to you. Greatest 
You're back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus. And on the line, we've got Gillian Blair. She harks from down along the west coast. And uh, we're talking about incinerators. G'day, Gillian. Good morning. Yes. G'day, Gillian. Yeah. And we started, we spoke to you a while ago, and then we uh, spoke to somebody from Craigieburn where they're talking about opening up a. a waste incinerator. We originally spoke to you about the fearful uh, health consequences, but we'll cross to Marcus first because he's got a little bit of information about uh, what's going on in terms of uh, the response in Craigieburn. Yeah, as you said, Annie, there is a proposed uh, toxic incinerator in the planning applications currently before the Hume City Council, and uh, I live in Craigieburn this Toxic incinerator, it's about 1.4 kilometres from where I live. It's directly opposite houses and, um, well, the locals are getting active and getting organised. The campaign, No Toxic Incinerator in Hume, uh, spearheaded by three of the Craigieburn locals that previously haven't been involved in activism. Uh, but it's a real talking point around the town. You walk into shops and, and shopkeepers are talking to people about toxic incinerator and what, what it will mean for the community if it if the council allows it to go ahead. So, I mean, there's a petition and you see people lining up in shops, uh, lining up, uh, waiting to sign this petition. So, I mean, it's positive signs that people are getting active and getting engaged, really understanding what a toxic incinerator in the Hume City Council would mean. I mean, as we've spoken about on the show, the area's been splashed with toxic chemical fires in recent years and, uh, yeah, this would just be the latest uh, yeah, negative uh, effect on the community. Why is it so significant that uh, the the uh, that people push back against these kind of incinerators, uh, Gillian? Uh, I think probably uh, one of the main reasons is uh, because of the propensity to damage people's lungs and their hearts, and now we find even their brains, the latest scientific information, is that air quality has a lot to do with why so many people get heart disease and lung disease. And the ACT has recently rejected incineration as a method of dealing with waste. They questioned the claims made by the proponents, and they're looking at safer methods because of the fact that it was going to be in the vicinity of people But the reason that our organisation, the Sustainable Agriculture and Communities Alliance, um, have opposed this is that it doesn't just affect, uh, very nastily affect the people living nearby, but it can also affect people thousands of kilometres away, as has happened in the USA. Um, The Inuit communities in um, Canada have been impacted by waste uh, toxins from incinerators in the USA. And I could give details about that maybe on a subsequent uh, meeting with you. But um, the waste incinerators, including gasification and pyrolysis plants, they've been rejected in the USA and Europe because of the air, soil and food chain pollution and the health impacts. And they're horrendously expensive but they don't actually solve the problem of waste because there are large amounts of highly concentrated toxic ash from the incineration and it creates a massive disposal problem. Uh, For instance, in Holland, they've actually built a mountain of the stuff and they've put it under plastic. And the poor economics are a real big reason for um, 
government to be against incineration because the need for resources, that's uh, things to burn, is matched by the need for capital subsidies. So you've got Harrisburg in the USA recently filed for bankruptcy because of ongoing costs over three decades and the cost of keeping the incinerator going, which was $400 million. And they're talking about it as a waste-to-energy um, plant, but in Europe they call them waste of energy. So the <laughs> poor energy returns, uh, compared to other methods of dealing with resources, they're very small compared with the energy that's saved by recycling and composting. And so Europe's now setting itself up or a circular economy. That means you've got cradle to grave to rebirth, lots of jobs regenerated regener and reduction of waste going to landfill. Whereas with, when you burn the waste, especially with, with plastics, um, you've got more waste going to toxic landfills. You know, it's interesting. So it just, oh, sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's self-perpetuating. It's funny, it reminds me of this, uh, 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 there's a film a while ago called My Country and it was uh, profiling David Gilpilly. Uh, it was a documentary and it was about him in, in his community and uh, and it's had a whole sequence with his uh, sister who was walking through the bush there and she, and they pointed out that they don't have any waste. And I thought it was such a profound thing to me that... Their community, as uh, it, uh, First Nations people in their past, they never had a problem with waste because they never had waste. <laughs> no. Which is kind of fascinating, really, isn't it? We've got a lot of waste. Yes. Yes, it is. And I remember in the days um, when I was living with my grandmother, uh, she didn't have anything in her dustbin except ash from the fire. And they were called dustbins for that reason. Um, and, and then we started to have supermarkets and they wrapped everything in plastic so that they could put little stickers on so that they can go through the, uh, <laughs> go through and, and have all the automation, uh, read out how much each item is. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons why everything's wrapped in plastic, including bananas and things that come in their own skins and don't need to go in bags. Yeah, that's exactly right. And they would see that as being, uh, the, in fact, it is. It's the uh, reason for why capitalism has got a new uh, lease of life. You know, it's a packaging work became the most important element in increasing uh, uh, profit, effectively, by, cap yes. uh, by yeah, yes. breaking things down into pieces and what they call value-adding. Yes, yes. But that's a whole but, other question, um, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, money is, is uh, subsidies from government are something that the uh, general population is not told about when they talk about incineration. And a lot of people are under the impression that when you burn something, it completely disappears. But it actually doesn't burn away to nothing at all. So you get the formation of things in the atmosphere and you get the formation of ash. And in actual fact, you've not actually lost anything. You've got dioxins, furans, and heavy metals and other toxins. They're the products of incineration. And those pollutants, and I think this is what the local inhabitants in this case are concerned about, they have an impact on people locally and much further away. So in 2000, it was a study uh, by the North American Commission on environmental cooperation. And they found that Inuit women in Navanfoot, Canada, had 
very high levels of dioxin in their breast milk. Now, if you know anything about dioxin, you know that it's the most potent cancer-causing stuff that man has created. And uh, a very, very small amount in nanoparticle amounts can cause cancer. And the major source of that pollution was the Harrisburg incinerator. I was going to talk about this later, but I think it's really important for people to know how far the pollution goes. And the global wind systems take the pollutants very long distances, not just locally. And they circulate around the world in a matter of days. So um, the other thing is that uh, I did an interview on my own radio show last year um, with uh, a professor, Professor Ravi Naidu. He's the chief executive um, of the Australian Contamination Research Agency, that's the CRC CARE, and, and he said pollution, soil pollution is particularly insidious, and he said that it harms us when we eat the food grown in the contaminated soil, and he went on to say it poisons the water that flows into dams and catchments, and the people working with the soil or the children playing in it can be exposed directly. And he went on to talk about how the United Nations in their 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development recognised soil's vital role in our well-being with four of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals containing targets that consider soil resources, especially soil pollution and degradation in relation to food security. So he estimated that the impact of the chemical contamination on the earth is five times as large as that of climate change. And he said humans are the cause of the problem. And he told me that humanity must work together to solve it before it's too late. So being interested in incineration, I was really concerned. Yeah, I can. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it, another issue with this incident, why, why do you think a, a local council would be thinking that this was a perfect e- a way of dealing with waste? We're not saying that the, the uh, Hume Council are, you know, full of terrible people and all the rest of it. They obviously think that they've got to solve problems. And I suppose the Victorian government, they're trying to solve waste problem, which they see as intractable, but they want answers. And so maybe a private company has come to them with this solution, do you think? Well, it's not even a private company. Um, The Victorian government's Metropolitan Waste and Resource Recovery Group is headed up by a professional, or should I say a refugee, from the UK incineration industry. And unfortunately, some renewable energy groups, as well as some municipalities, seem to have fallen for the misinformation from that industry. And uh, so-called education workshops, and I went to one of them, have been running um, last year, and they went for several weeks because they covered all of the uh, municipalities in Victoria, and they were teaching, or should I say brainwashing, local government people about how good the incineration industry is. And some of them already want facilities in their areas. And um, there's a bloke called Paul Clapham, uh, who's now promoting incineration in, us, in Victoria as part of his work for the Metropolitan Waste and Resource Recovery Group. And um, he's in a powerful position. Uh, he, re- he had um, an hour to persuade people about how good it was. And I was allowed five minutes to tell them that in Europe and the UK and the USA, people are chucking it out. Um, but 
anyway, this is an incineration industry that's looking for a home down under since becoming unpopular in other countries. And the Victorian Government Statutory Authority um, are the main Victorian drivers in the burning proposals, and that accounts why I was blocked from speaking to any decision-makers in Melbourne or the Victorian Government and the Federal Government. In fact, Frydenberg, he's got a most appropriate name, Fry the Mountain, um, he didn't want to know, his department didn't want to know. And, um, yeah, that might account for the compliance with incineration that's been evident on the part of the Victorian EPA. That's fascinating. Uh, well, you might be pleased to know that uh, the Craigieburn residents aren't feeling that good about it and it has activated, uh, as Marcus has pointed out, has activated uh, people who would normally not get off their seats on in regards to any situation. Yes, now there's one thing I would like to say just um, before we close. Um, this is a very hungry industry, and uh, the more you burn, the more you need to burn, and it, it actually eliminates any possibility of recycling things like plastics. We know that the plastic industry is in bed with the burning industry, and um, they're making a business case for uh, getting more goods. So um, I think that uh, you, if you read what they say um, in their statements from the MMBW, uh, you'll actually see what they're looking at is looking for more places where they can get more waste to burn. So you wouldn't be able to run this very expensive uh, facility uh, unless there were a number of sites around metropolitan Melbourne and country Victoria that are potentially available in their words. Gosh, in, it sounds uh, like private prisons. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very nasty sort of thing. And they're looking um, what the criteria is and they're assessing what a piece of land, including the transport and the zoning and the close proximity to incentive areas and areas that could take offsets for energy and electricity. And that's why they've gone down to the Latrobe Valley, for instance, because they know there's a big paper mill down there. And the paper mill and the burning industry are looking at getting money from the government and... It's huge amounts of, of, of money that they would get every year. And if you look at what's happened in Britain, uh, people have not been able to hang out their washing in some areas where they've had these facilities because you've got the dust. And people breathe it in. And when you're looking at the very modern plants, they say, oh, there isn't anything. You can't see any smoke. Well, uh, these are nanoparticles. Nanoparticles are the worst. And they go deep into your lungs and they cross the blood-brain barrier and do all sorts of nasty work inside your body. Thanks for talking to us today, Gillian. <laughs> it's a pleasure. And thanks for having thanks. me. And uh, just before we go to This Is The Week That Was, the very last for the year, uh, I'd just like to uh, plug a film that's uh, just going to come out. It's called uh, The Biggest Little Farm. And uh, Gillian was talking about uh, soil uh, rejuvenation. It's a film that uh, is incredible uh, in regard to uh, people applying themselves to uh, turning an arid part of California into one of the most luscious-looking, happy farms I've ever seen. Anyway, it was a, a great inspiration. So if you get a chance, uh, The Biggest Little Farm is really worth going to see.
A weak solidarity Ricky team listener when a Saudi trained killer ran riot at a US of the UN of the US of the World train killer airbase and killed and injured a few cream of US of youth, brave young men and women in uniform trained killers, apparently unaware that his country is not at war with the US of. Indeed, they are the closest of close friends, united in their love and respect for liberty, freedom and democracy. So we can assume, like after 9-11, when the perpetrators were also Saudis, that the US will now be forced to invade evil Iraq and evil Afghanistan and have to liberate those countries all over again despite the roaring success of that liberation, just when it thought they were good Iraq and good Afghanistan, although in fairness the first invasion was so successful that it hasn't actually ended, so they just have to hype up the ongoing invasion. The clown prince sent his apologies to Donald, so that should take care of any Saudi responsibility. Responsibility back here. We have to congratulate a poly called Proudfart for competence as Minister for Natural Disasters, because doesn't he keep living up to his name or his, or his title's name? Because there's natural disasters just everywhere which would make him the exception to that most disturbing ANU survey showing 75% of true blue Aussies have no faith in politicians. Most disturbing, because what's it say about the other 25%? Bringing us to proposals this week by former arch-conservative High Court beak Kenneth Hayne, he of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Banking Con mission, which backfired spectacularly on those who appointed him as a safe bet, especially their attempts to hand all that lovely, lovely workers' super money to their mates in the banks. And this week, his honour argued corporate boardrooms have a legal duty to act on climate change. He even assumed there is such a thing as climate change. Flicking a less-than-subtle broadside, it's subtle them, it scuttled them and the team on the way. Both learned helplessness and short-termism yield a result that fits comfortably with those who still see climate change as a matter of belief or ideology. What disrespect for Big Supremo scuttle them and the gang, especially when simultaneously our Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, whose career seems to be doing just that, Angus Tailings was over in Brussels assuring the world True Blue Aussie was meeting its commitments in a canter. So assuring we, be so assuring we believe at least one delegate half thought maybe it was true, just the one, but it shows how Angus's credibility shone through. And the fossil industry and the the corporate sector generally came out and said they didn't need any more red tape and regulation which cost jobs and creating employment is all they care about and a brilliant rebuttal on all their behalves from the Institute of Public Very Private Affairs Director of Research Daniel Wilde real name who was so very wild he put his honour in his place and we learned the truth about his honour which helps explain why he nailed the retail super funds and not the evil union funds. The forensic detail of Daniel's research shone as the opening par of a so-called think piece in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review set the tone for his rebuttal. Far from being a disinterested arbiter of banking regulation, Kenneth Haynes' comments about climate change have proven he is just another left-wing representative of the Canberra swamp and the wrong person to head the banking royal con mission.
direct quote, no embellishment. Now, with that as an opening par, we can see where Daniel's profound logic and research are going from here. No need to read on. Haynes' biggest error was his certainty that there is nothing to debate about whether there is such a thing as climate change. Daniel couldn't believe anyone would be so assertive without proof, with relying on nothing more than about 99.999% of scientists saying there is such a thing as. These points must be debated in a manner consistent with the values of a liberal democracy like True Blue Aussie, he wrote, and the liberal was in lower case. But, but, but Daniel, uh, what would be consistent with True Blue Aussie values then? Uh, everyone agreeing with us. And they call the Institute of Public very private a think tank. Well, well, I suppose that's how they think. On which climate activist Greta Thunberg, whose Time Person of the Year announcement received such warm congratulations from the always gracious US of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, Greta Thunberg obviously also troubles Lord Rupert's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head, because nary a column goes by without him attacking her and explaining that not only is there no such thing as climate change, but indeed the reverse of the dire dangers painted by Greta Thunberg and warmists, non-deniers like that out-of-control commie Kenneth Hayne is happening. She's obviously got him rattled. Two columns this week, two piggies of Greta, Thursday describing her as the troubled 16-year-old Swede. And in that he is correct, for once we have to agree with him. She is troubled by people like him. But by week's end, scuttled them had mouthed the words climate change, even if it was to say it had nothing to do with the bushfires devastating the country, although he had the foresight, perhaps recommended by his security people, to have medical personnel and an ambulance on hand in case stating the term proved near fatal. Meanwhile, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Anthony All-Being Uzi, took advantage of this to posture himself as the saviour of the country on the climate change if there is such a thing as you. Trotting around North Queensland in the huge Cuba or whatever all pollies must wear once they cross the border to reveal the Socialist Party solution to climate change if there is. Coal. Coal, Anthony declared, is the answer to climate change if which, in fairness, is about even money with Scuttlebem's solution, thoughts and prayers. If people are a bit worried about climate change panicking, I'll keep panicking, because in the that-that'll-make-us-feel-safe that, department, they plan to have these paramilitary trained killers wearing all the accoutrements of trained killing patrol the airport carrying, quote, short-barrel MK-18 rifles, which apparently can kill heaps of people in many seconds, and the reason they assure us is to assure us, to make us feel safe and secure. One ungrateful woman punter interviewed on the telly report I saw said, and how's this for ingratitude, paramilitaries running around with high-powered weapons pointing at her would make her feel more insecure and afraid. Some people. Now, the week that was mathematics poser of the week. When does 3 equal 10 and 10 equal 3? And the answer... Yeah, it's easy, you would have got it. When supermarket giant kills value makes a promise, like an extra 10 cents on milk would go straight to the farmer. And in fact, the farmer received a fabulous and super generous three cents from kills value. Generous because it could have been two or one or even naught. 
When sprung by the regulator, Kills Value explained the discrepancy, well, assumed discrepancy, as the regulator misinterpreting its promise. The regulator, Kills Value explained, thought mistakenly when we said the whole 10 cents would go to the farmer, we meant the whole 10 cents would go to the farmer. Hard to see how the regulator could have be, could have made such a huge mistake. And two in one. Our maths posts are also provided a lesson in grammar. Also on maths, making a killing out of death, this mob called Invocare. Real name, otherwise you wouldn't know what I'm talking about. And please don't say I never do. That hurts. It's insensitive. But Invocare is all sensitivity. It runs all these funeral brands, including White Lady, and the ads tell us how sensitive and caring they are, and Simplicity, which they promote as bargain basement stuff. But consumer watchdog choice has dared attack them for adding a $352 late fee to its bill when it sends the bill out, which choice somewhat understated as unnecessary. Uh, well, the undertaker undertook to explain. It, it makes collecting a late fee simplicity itself. Oh, and Invercare made a small 40 mil profit in the first half of the year, and we can understand how. The true blue Aussie capitalist review every fortnight does a reader survey on news items over the fortnight. Incidentally, the other week it asked whether during the catastrophic bushfires it was or wasn't the time to talk climate change, if there is. And unlike Scuttle Them, 64% of readers said, yes, we need to talk about climate change, showing these aren't your average, highly intelligent Lord Rupert a whopping sin reader. Anyway, this week they said the stock exchange index was up 19% to 6,700. And the big question, do you think it will reach 7,000 by the end of the year? But they omitted the most obvious option. All they offered was yes, no, don't know. What happened to don't care? Don't care. There are obviously people we have to care about and people we don't have to care about, exemplified this week, and I, I don't intend to belittle the New Zealand tragedy and the dreadful suffering of the dead, their families and friends, and the long-term pain of the injured. Mass coverage, four to six pages a day in the Wapping Sin, for instance, but a day earlier, more than 40 workers were killed and many injured in a, in a New Delhi factory fire, sleeping overnight at the illegal factory, trapped, a classic case of industrial murder, and it warranted three paragraphs buried away at the bottom of a left-hand page. That wasn't slightly funny, just an observation. Finally, another quiz. What do Bethlehem, the dear baby Jesus and True Blue Aussie have in common? The answer? Obvious again, yeah, you would have got it. True Blue Aussie also has no room at the inn for no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people. Well, that's it. Another year that was. Enjoy the break. Good morning.
you're back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. How are you? G'day, Don. Really well, thanks, Annie. How are you and Marcus? So, all your listeners, I hope, are well. Yeah, we're leading Good, in. Thanks, Don. Yeah, we're leading into Christmas, and uh, it's slightly spitting outside. So Melbourne is living up to its uh, weather dream. <laughs> One minute a bit sunny, and the next minute a bit chilly. But you know that's okay. Um, yeah. yeah, you've moved to Melbourne. You need, so... a back, you need a backpack to go out in Melbourne. You've got to be able to carry extra litres of water for a part of the day, and then you've got to pull out a raincoat the next. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, now that you say that, I have a permanent umbrella in my bag, and occasionally I forget to pack it, and, I, and then it rains. <laughs> And I yeah. feel deeply yeah. aggrieved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we're well, talking... Hmm? Uh, just one very brief thing about um, workers and uh, the heating of the planet. Yep. Uh, I think... And then we, we should talk about some new information that's relevant to the annual wage review that's now underway. Um, but very, very quickly, um, the last couple of weeks, as we discussed last week, uh, indicates that what climate change is doing and global heating of the planet is doing is throwing up new problems and challenges, not just for governments, but for unions also. And that's what we saw last week with the incredible uh, volume of uh, poisonous smoke getting into the atmosphere from the bushfires bush in Queensland and New South Wales. And that means that the whole of the state, or just about all of the state, especially population-wise, has been affected. I don't think we were thinking about smoke in terms of its implications for health and safety for workers as much as we've been thinking about heat. And so that's what's new. And so when it comes to the heat question, though, uh, we are now facing warnings from the Bureau of Meteorology that over the next few days this massive um, heat wave that is um, boiling up in the west is going to be drifting eastwards and bigger parts of the population are therefore the working population going to expose to temperatures in the mid-40s and even nudging maybe into the 50s. Oh, my God. Yes. Now, uh, and once again, this is where there are some unions who are ahead of the game here and have quite strong policies Uh, although the law is behind them. So, for example, in Victoria, uh, I understand, and someone can correct me if I'm now wrong about this, um, there are no specific statutory or regulatory limits on the temperature to which workers can be exposed. Um, Oh, except in the construction industry. And and, when you're at school, you're allowed to go after 35 or something. Well, I think it does depend on what can be negotiated by unions in industry agreements, uh, enterprise agreements and so on. So, for example, I believe the ETU in Victoria in its contracting industry agreement has an extreme high temperature for five is 35 degrees. And I guess to that, the bosses are required to consult with the union, not just the workers, on ways to minimise heat risks and so on. Um and the very minimum is that they must be relocated out of direct sunlight uh, or into an air-conditioned area and supplied with 
uh, appropriate protective clothing, cool drinks, etc., etc. Oh, since you so, bring it up, I mean, in uh, over the last few years, there have been incidents of young fellows working on roofs and stuff. Uh, several incidents of them actually dying of uh, um, yeah. heat exhaustion. Uh, quite a yes, terrible, so, terrible loss. So I think everyone would agree. Um, uh, those who are specialists on the topic in the union movement, that we've still got a hell of a long way to go, but that uh, work, workers who have not yet joined the union need to do so because it's on the basis of union membership that you are in the strongest position to be able to successfully not work when the heat gets extreme, as it is going to do on and off through the summer, given that we're only a fortnight, well, we're only a month or so out of spring, and already we have you know, bushfires uh, causing enormous havoc and, of course, now the prospect of extreme heat very early in the summer. So there is, this is big union business and, above all, and at a deeper level, uh, all workers need to be able to stand, make a decision together to stand up for themselves, join the union if necessary, because if that's where you're going to get the best possible advice how to deal with these climate change-induced uh, environmental circumstances. Um, the... it, it's interesting. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's kind of interesting because it points out a sort of increasing dissonance between the real world and the administrative world. Yes. Uh, the real... Workers live in the real world and they actually make the society turn over each and every day, each and every minute in, a, in real circumstances. And the things like laws and regulations drag behind that, especially in a situation that we have now where uh, the heating of the atmosphere is such, uh, is happening at an exponential rate. Uh, to be able to be in this situation so early in the summer is indicative of a real-world exponential increase in the hazards facing humankind, and specifically, more so than anyone else, people who work. I mean, just stop and think for a moment that when we get to 45-degree temperatures, it is the rich and powerful that are most able to live minute by minute in relative comfort uh, so much more than any other part of the population. And uh, we, we need to sort of see what's going on in class terms and be able to deal with it on that basis. And as you said, Don, it is important that workers uh, join their union and uh, more importantly that workers um, form designated work groups under the Occupational Health and Safety Act and elect health and safety reps because health and safety reps have powers and protections under the Act where they can deal with such matters. That's exactly right. Uh, yes, and thank you. I, I neglected to mention that. And that's that is, there are provisions in the Health and Safety Act uh, that actually do give extra powers to workers that are not available, say, under the Fair Work Act. Now, before we uh, move on to the annual wage review, uh, that dissonance uh, turned up again uh, with the uh, employers wanting to go to. Uh, to appeal the uh, recent decision that uh, the Cadbury's workers got, uh, we, if they work, the employers want them to work twelve-hour shifts, but uh, they only want to pay them eight-hour uh, 
yes. uh, sick leave days, and uh, yes. the employers have the uh, audacity to say that uh, this is against uh, the uh, um, general. Uh, uh, practice, you know, but they. This is a classic case of wanting your cake and eat it too. You want the workers to work for twelve-hour shifts, but you only want them if they're sick to take an eight-hour sick day. Yes, and you want you want a regulatory state to intervene to to establish that arrangement for you. Yeah, that is such a such a Franz Kafka sort of situation. Well. It, it, that's basically the history of capitalism, that um, when it's faced with a victory from workers, it will turn to uh, a government, the state, so to speak, to so- solve the problem for them. Yeah, outrageous. So that is the development that's Greedy. unfolded this week, has it, in the last couple of days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they've yeah. taken it to appeal. So tell us about what's going on with the uh, annual wage review. Well, the, only, uh, uh, the annual wage review is now underway and the most important date is, you know, when the, the next point in the process is when the various parties, union, the, the Australian Council of Trade Unions on behalf of workers and all the different employer organisations and also some other social justice organisations associated with the churches put in their claims for what, the increase should be, and the deadline for that is March the 15th next year. But I'll just toss in, before we elaborate, two bits of information. Firstly, the annual accounts, uh, sorry, the quarterly national accounts came up last week, and no one else has reported this, so you're getting a scoop. What they confirmed is that the rate of exploitation of the Australian workforce continued to increase. And no one else talks about this. They talk about, you know, what's going on with productivity in the national accounts. And some people might talk about the volume of profits. But the really important thing from our point of view is that the rate of exploitation is now running at about 42.3%. And that's increased from nearly 32%. In other words, 10% uh, uh, four years ago. So just four years. That's incredible. The rate of exploitation in Australia of the Australian workforce has increased by 10%, from 32% to just a touch above 42.3%. The second bit of information is that I have learned uh, that uh, 67% of young people who have jobs are paid under the award rates. So they're either paid the minimum rate the, the, the national minimum rate or the minimum rates that are required in each of the 120-odd industry awards. That's 67% of young people in jobs. And by young people, we're talking about people 35 years back to, you know, 18 years old, roughly. Um, so God, that's incredible. Yeah. Now, that means that those workers are a, a big part the biggest part of the 2.2 million workers whose standard of living is determined in part by the decision in the annual wage review that's handed down roughly at the end of May, early June each year. And that means that the annual wage review is actually a very big deal for the union movement. 
far bigger, a far bigger deal than most activists in the movement currently understand. Um, when we look at so when you say that, what you're saying is that it's one of the mechanisms that this system has for altering the gears that might increase uh, the uh, betterment of uh, working people, a large amount of working people, especially young working people, and that by overlooking it as being an important element, then activists are... Um, uh, a bit blind. Yes, I think I think the um, the dominance of enterprise bargaining unionism, uh, which we can come back to in a moment, but the dominance of enterprise bargaining unionism in union activity means that most activists have been blinded to the significance and importance of the annual wage review. As you say, the annual wage review is the most important event each year that one way or another determines what's going on with inequality in Australia. That's how important it is. And the reason why it is so important is because potentially, a potential so far unrealised, potentially the people who are on the cusp or living in, in you know, who are living on the cusp of poverty or in poverty, have the opportunity for, and it's just an opportunity, but the opportunity for intervention to have their say in that decision. Now, that makes it very different to uh, other instruments that might be used, for example, uh, the budget, uh, which is removed significantly from um, uh, effective influence uh, from uh, by the people who are most affected by it when it comes to poverty. So it's a very important event and it is increasingly important because it offers the potential for a, a better strategy for Australian unions on behalf of workers generally than the one that's currently uh, dominant in our movement. But you're one of the few people that I've heard speak about it with such as so as such an important uh, mechanism. Uh, it it uh, is often dissipated. I, I can al- almost predict, uh, and the headline hasn't happened. It's March, right? Uh, you say uh, I can predict the uh, headline for the two days later, and people will have to look to see if I'm correct. But they'll say the amount that the ACTU call for an increase, and then they'll say uh, it will impoverish uh, industry. Yes, yes, and uh, as they have done for the last, um, you know, for forever, really. Um, but you're right, uh, there will be... Uh, the ACTU, uh, in the last three, I think it is, annual wage reviews, uh, and this is within the context of the Change the Rules campaign, of course, um, that was the dominant feature of the strategy before the federal election, uh, have been pushing for a, an increase big enough that would take low-paid workers up to the level of a, of a living wage. And in other words, to find the minimum wage as a living wage. That's and right. that last year meant 
an application for a 7% pay increase. And but, three- you know, they don't say 7%. What they'll say is $56 or something like that, and it seems uh, huge. Yes, it does, and it seems huge. But, of course, for, uh, for uh, workers on low income, on low wages, it's not. It's, uh, no. it's yeah, and it is. It is money actually that is going to be spent very quickly. Some of it, some well, I think there is a big trend going on for workers who are in debt to use the extra money that might be in their pay pack, as, as in the case with the, with, with the famous tax cuts that were supposed to save the economy. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. But know, but but you see that. The, it's generally believed that the only way this economy uh, under uh, Daggy Dad uh, um, Morrison is that uh, it, more Australians have to be in greater debt for it yes. to survive, right? Yes. The, it, it, yes. But the most, I mean, what really comes is, is out of all this are two big questions, and that is... Um, uh, and, and this is in the context of the Ensuring Integrity Bill victory, which... I think was an important victory, and um, but it's best understood as a temporary one because we know they're going to reintroduce the bill. They already and, have. It already has. Yeah, yeah, they already have, of course, and uh, and uh, we know that Lambie and Hanson cannot be relied upon to vote against the, the new version of it. Um, there will certainly be something up the sleeve of the government to make sure they vote the way in which the government wants them to vote. But it did have, but the, that victory did reveal that there is a latent potential basis, a, a potential for effective organising that goes on the offensive, not just winning a defensive battle, but simultaneously moving into an offensive battle, including around the annual wage review. Yeah, it's interesting um, to me that you should say this because, and we are coming to the end really, but uh, I mean, I know you've got lots more to say, but you brought up a couple of things in this. Um, the issue of productivity as opposed to uh, the equality issue, inequality issue. Uh, it, it tells you all that the mainstream media is always talking about things like productivity, which is actually the mantra of the boss class. Uh, it never uh, phrase, uh, to, uh, phrases it in terms of the needs of the general population, which is to have a reasonable standard of living. So if they're exploiting people 42% in, at greater means, uh, the, uh, that discussion, as you said, never is put out there. And if, uh, on one hand, uh, you want to start a campaign, a lot of the union stuff appears to be, is made to look self-serving. But if there was this groundswell of stuff, messages around the issue of that 42% exploitation increase uh, in a way that was understandable by the people who are actually being told that they have to be more productive, then there might be a, a bit of a uh, change. I guess. Yes, well, on the economics, um, the employers, when they carry on about productivity, that is code for profitability. That's exactly right. And that's what it, people need to know. It, it, and every mainstream economist who rabbits on about productivity is really disguising a worry that they have about what's having, happening to pro- profitability. And the, the, the 
only way in which any profitability problem can be resolved is by increasing the rate of exploitation of the workers, which at particular moments every now and again requires increased underemployment and unemployment, so not just the current level but an increase in it, and also downward pressure on wages. And so they will go to the annual wage review and if they propose any wage increase at all, it will be very small and they will cloak their proposal in terms of a productivity problem and in doing so seek to disguise that their real concern is they want to increase the volume of profit relative to their total investment. Now, that is all smoke and mirrors in some ways, but it is a real issue. And what is really worrying is that labour economists in Australia these days, almost to a person, also dig into and embrace the productivity mantra. Yeah, yeah, because they've, they've, they've taken on board. The labour economist, and I think I can say this safely, not a single labour economist, and I am an amateur, not a single labour economist has pointed to the increase in the rate of exploitation yet again in the national accounts. And I think that's wrong and they need to kick up the backside about that. The, it's just not good enough for labour economists not... To be talking, just to sing about, it's okay to sing about exploitation, but it's not a, it's not okay to actually work out and point out that this, there is a scientific evidence that shows what's going on in regards to it. And I would say this: the rate of exploitation of the workforce that is making our society tick over day to day today is double what it was 50 years ago. Yeah, as someone pointed out, uh, if it was about productivity and stuff like that, people could go home after um, <clears throat> half the week because they've increased their level of productivity uh, so extremely. So as we get to the end of today's discussion, yeah, it's really important to know that there is the possibility of an alternative strategy that tackle, takes on the annual wage review and makes sure that all of the logic that the employers and the government will bring to bear, that there should be stuff all uh, for low-paid workers because we're in a drift to recession and there's global headwinds and all that palaver, is wrong. And we need to build a mass campaign in support of the maintenance, the increase, a big increase, that meets the objective of bringing more and more workers out of the edge of poverty or out of poverty itself. And there is, as I said before, when you're talking about 67% of young people dependent upon that decision for their wage increase, there is great potential for union growth in that. Now, at another time, we might elaborate about what that strategy might look like. But just consider this. Imagine that on March the 15th, or maybe just before it next year, in every capital city where there is a Fair Work Commission office, there are 600 people or 500 or 800 people demonstrating in front of it when the ACTU presents its claim. And then, a month or so later, on May Day, on the actual day, there's 10 times that number who on that day in some way are demonstrating their demand that the Fair Work Commission 
abide, uh, accept the ACTU claim. In other words, we move from polite compliance, submission-based argumentation, very polite, very cuddly, into the mobilising of workers in solidarity with each other across as many unions as possible to demonstrate what we want. If we consider that, imagine that as being the foundation for it being even bigger the following year. So we conceive of this as a strategy that develops over three or four years into a movement that in the end restores industry and class-wide bargaining in practice, not just as a slogan and not dependent upon the election of the Labor government. Thank you, Don. Thanks, Don. Have a good break. Oh, yes, that. That's coming up. Well, happy, <laughs> uh, happy holidays, and I hope everyone stays cool in all sorts of ways. I want to love her, but I don't want the trouble. Want a cigarette, but don't want the cancer. I want to be a good girl by being naughty. Benefits of working hard by only being lazy. I wanna party, but I don't wanna tidy. I don't wanna have a job, I just want the money. I wanna be a pirate and go sail across the seas on ship of such proportions you would terrorize your dream. Nobody knows how the world will turn, whether you're gonna fall in love or gonna be burned. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.